HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we are just getting started. Find us at Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Avery Razika of Manresa Bread. And I really invited her on for one specific reason. A box showed up to my house filled with bread and pastry, all the viennoiserie, but there was a bag inside. And on the bag, emblazoned in big gothic letters, it said, all my friends are bread. And I knew I had to be friends with this person <laughs> who thought the same thing about bread and people. Uh, as I did. So Avery, thank you so much for coming on the food scene. Um, I've also been lucky enough to visit you in uh, Los Gatos, California, this great little bakery stand. I mean, it's not a large space at all. That is putting out some of the best bread in the country. Um, But let's talk about Greensboro, North Carolina, and what kind of cereal grain you grew up eating. Um, Greensboro, North Carolina. Yeah. I mean, growing up, actually, my family did really love food. So we, we, my parents both baked. Um, so we would make a rye bread. That was kind of what I grew up on. Um, it was a dark rye with a ton of poppy seeds. And I don't think it was from the Moosewood cookbook, but it was something, you know, it was some, some sort of hippie kind of, um, dark rye with prunes and poppy seeds. And it's actually really awesome. You make a big pot of chili with it. And that was kind of what we grew up on. Yeah. And so watching my parents make bread was, one of it was just something normal it wasn't at all I never thought about being a bread baker whatsoever until my probably early 20s um but it was something I had seen that I knew of that existed I also feel like moosewood is is not just a benchmark but a rite of passage for a lot of people of of a certain era yeah um into 
good food. Absolutely. And and aside from just bread, it sounds like your parents were adept at that. Absolutely. Absolutely. We grew up uh, watching a lot of PBS um, morning uh, shows, and my both my parents loved to cook. Um, and my parents talk about when they first were married, my dad was not a very good cook, um, and he was very much a recipe follower to the point that it was sort of would drive my mom insane. She'd have to leave the kitchen. And it's funny because by the time, you know, I remember cooking with my parents, um, that was not at all the case. Everybody just was cooking, you know, and they would take turns each night. But we always sat down together as a family, um, myself, my parents, my sister, um, and would every meal, you know, eat together at the table, which was, I think, so formative because food really was at the center. Hanging out in the kitchen was what we did as a family. But you said cooking, not baking. Do you remember the first time you ever baked? Yeah, I mean, growing up, I remember baking with my mom. My grandmother, my mom's um, mother, is uh, or was uh, Danish. And so there were a lot of uh, baking traditions that were really important um, to both my mom and my grandmother. And so I remember spending time with both of them and we would make able skeevers which are really amazing and such and you need a specific pan for you that do too. you do actually there was a very bad incident as a child my father um so we would make the able skeevers and we would we would even use sometimes a little bit of bacon fat and so at you know after you cook with bacon fat you really just want to any kind of fat and cast iron you want to just drain it off kind of wipe down the pan re-season well my father or my mother had set it over the trash can and this was like this passed down, passed down thing, and my dad threw it away. Ooh. And it was, actually, I hope my parents don't listen to this because I don't <laughs> want to bring that up again for them. But yeah, it was not good. So you do have to have a, spe- a specific pan, but that was an important tradition for my f- whole family, myself included, yeah. It seems like you were interested in tradition because I know you went to college at UNC Chapel Hill mm-hmm. for political science, international science, creative writing. Yeah. And a lot of people that I hear that from usually just use that the parlay going overseas. Well, I mean, um, I, it definitely brought me overseas. I was I was very lucky. I was able to go abroad actually at a really young age. I moved um, to Spain as a sophomore in high school for a study abroad year. And that would actually be the moment that I would say I became enamored with food. I respected food because my parents loved it. I res- enjoyed the traditions, but I really didn't like to eat as a kid at all. And then I moved to Spain and all of the kind of polite uh, etiquette that my parents had instilled in me. Now I'm suddenly living with this amazing family in Spain with these amazing culinary traditions. We're living in Santander, which is a kind of a port town on the, on the North sea. And you're, um, we're eating these amazing midday meals, you know, like you're just having true Spanish feasts. And so kind of that mentality of don't get up until your plate is clear was drilled in my head. But suddenly I was like enjoying food in a way, discovering food. So when at the end of that year, my parents came, um, to pick me up, we went and took a big trip in Europe together. Uh, my mom said she couldn't even recognize me because I was eating, you know, baby eels and like just things like blood sausage. And she was like, I don't know who this child is. So, so yes, when I was in college, um, I definitely used this as an opportunity to go abroad again um, and actually started cooking thinking I wanted to be a food writer. And I thought, um, I moved back from France. I lived in France for about two years in college. I took some time off and stayed there. Um, and I moved back, and I was going to be finishing up uh, my last year at Chapel Hill. And I thought, well, if I want to write about food, I should at least know what it's like to be in a kitchen. I don't have anything else I need to do this summer. So I got a job in what it was the best little restaurant in Greensboro at the time. And you know, I think it was paid eight twenty-five, maybe $8 an hour. Um, and I was just so thrilled to be there. And I found, and then I got another job at the same time. So I was taking like a 45-minute nap between two, the two <laughs> jobs. I loved it so much. I mean, it was so high on being in the kitchen, you know. And um, 
and realized that this thing was making me so happy. So I, I finished college. Um, but then that's when I decided to move. I realized that, I mean, as much as I thought food writing would be an incredible career, I was just it really had the the kitchen bug and so moved up to New York to go to what was then the French Culinary Institute which is now the ICC. Let's talk about the difference between cooking and baking again. Yeah. Cuz I hear you keep on using the word cooking, but they are separated in a lot of people's minds or yeah. are they in yours? No, they are. You're right. So but so I think but that the that was where so in in living in France um you know, you've, you you mentioned the traditions of, of my childhood or the of the cooking and the baking. I think that all through my kind of youth, adolescence, early 20s, all of those things were intertwined until a moment where sort of I had these beautiful emotional memories of being in a kitchen, maybe not even loving the food at that point, but the, the emotional part was there. Then I moved to France and I started to really like discover scents and smells. I mean, walking down a street in Paris and walking by a bakery, you know, I don't really think it happens in any other major city in Europe the same way to me at least not I don't remember it in Spain and Madrid and small towns even there but in Paris any little street you're walking down you, you'll walk by and this maybe it's because of the location of the bakeries and the basements maybe it's because DOB hasn't fucked shit yeah. up and let them vent that <laughs> yeah, delicious that's smell that's onto true. the street so so and you would walk by and so I was like, <coughs> so at the French Culinary Institute in New York you were studying international baking yeah, so I went there for their cooking program. And then in the program there is multi stages. One of those stages is across the hall from their baking program. And I kept watching these people bake every day and I thought, I want to be in there. I want to the smells, you know, the smells were the same as the smells coming from the streets of Paris. Um and I thought, I'm going to do this. It's it's a, I think it's a 6 week week program. It's not a very long program. I'd finished the color. I was finishing the culinary program, and it was that next baking program was about to start. So I signed up for it. It's a ten thousand dollar program, six weeks. You know, I mean, <coughs> well, I mean, bread is expensive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a super expensive endeavor. Um, and I was so in love with that program. I mean, <coughs> the when I was when I was there, I was lucky because um, it's a great school. But on top of that, we had. <laughs> we had a very poor retention rate of students. And so we went from a class of maybe 10 or 11 down to a class of five. And we had three hands-on instructors because they had an instructor in training. So it was this incredible ratio. Yeah. It was amazing. So <clears throat> I had all these really passionate people, two of whom had baked for Thomas Keller in one location or another, one at the French Laundry, another at Per Se, were both two of the instructors. And so it was just this incredible time of having real resources on top of the curriculum that were just happy to answer no end of question, you know, and really instill great habits into, to me, even at that point as a brand new baker. Not to say that there's a cooking school hierarchy, but I always feel like the brigade <clears throat> system, if it were yeah. one, was, uh, you know, savory and then pastry and then bread was always relegated somewhere else. Absolutely. Why do you think that is? Um, Because I think that people... Well, I, a lot of reasons. I think that bakers' personality, I mean, I think there are plenty of historical reasons. I think, that, you know, cooks in general, too, for a long time was not a profession, right? But but bakers also, people who are um, truly skilled at baking, who are passionate about baking, who kind of want to just live in the baking bread world, are kind of a unique kind of person. And I think they're 
so obsessive. They don't always even want to ask for praise, recognition. They're just really happy to do their craft. And I'm not saying that pastry chefs or savory chefs are not that in that same way, but I think that <clears throat> the baker, it, it is such a private world. You know, you're not typically baking in front of people. You, you're not typically, the baker's kind of scullied away somewhere, right? And like the, the chef might be take out, you know, might come out in their whites or something, but the baker's working at off hours of the day, um, early, early morning, the middle of the night. And so, and for a lot of bakers, that's totally okay that, that they are fine with it. They love what they're doing. But yeah, I think it's because people that that personality type sort of was okay is okay just getting to do what they do um, first and foremost. Well, let's talk about the felicity of meeting <clears throat> Chef David Kinch okay. uh, of Manresa and uh, what what is his obsession, his personality type? Because I almost find him very akin to how you just described a baker. Um, he's yeah. So he, what immediately um, connected to me to or attracted me to David was. Um, his curiosity. Um, so when I really truly made the decision to like, what, when I thought about what am I loving about being in a, in a kitchen, it was that every day there's an opportunity to learn something new. Not every job gives you that. I mean, no, other jobs might give you a much higher paycheck, but, (laughs) but, um, but cooking every single day, if you want to come in that kitchen and learn something new, you can. And, but not everybody wants to strive for that. And so, David, it was like when I met him, I mean, I was totally, you know, um, intimidated and everything. But but the way he connected, the way he talked to myself as a I was I met him when he was doing an event um, with uh, he was doing an event. I can't even remember what the event was, but he was doing an event with a uh, with a French food omnivore. He was doing omnivore mm-hmm. in New York. Um and all of these French chefs were prepping at the culinary school. And I spoke French and it was a big event that was being put on by um, our buddies at well, Wild Air now. But they were they were just recent graduates of the FCI too. And so they were, had their hands full. They were doing a lot of stuff. Um, and uh, the cooks needed, like these chefs, these French chefs needed help. And I was like, well, here's where things are. And, you know, mm-hmm. you know this is where the salt is, et cetera. And David sort of talked to me like I was anybody else. He didn't talk to me like I was a student. He talked to me about the strawberries he was working on. He talked to me about the dish. He 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 engaged with me and taught me just in like passing. And it was like, well, that's what I want to be around. You know, somebody who who I'm just moving. I'm just helping you get spatulas and you're teaching me about what you're doing and it, you don't mind it and you're not making a big deal about it. And this is a three-star Michelin chef yes. in Los Gatos, California, yes. yeah. you know, who is eponymously named Yeah, he's just casually. Manessa. Yeah, and he's just casually, you know, he's in. And also, you know, it was very California kind of moment too where he's, he's wearing, he and his sous chef at the time were wearing, you know, jeans and like a short sleeve chef coat, you know, very casual, but, but we're so focused on what they were doing. So meticulous and passionate. And I I felt like you could just, you could see the passion coming off of him, you know, and it was like, that's what I wanted to be around. And so, and he, and he still is exactly like that. And that's what's so incredible. That's what I love about him is he, he's, Man Race has been around, this is, it's, we're going into the, we've celebrated basically the 16th year. um, And he is, still 
you know, striving still, just still, not even striving just to strive, but striving because he just is, he's excited to learn more. So, you know, they're going to open a restaurant this fall. It's going to do a lot of pastas. And he's so excited about working on all this pasta work. You know, it's really, it's, it's wonderful to be around. Well, I mean, if you can't tell why you were lured out there, we're going to take a quick break (laughs) and talk about what got you out west. Sounds good. The manifest destiny of Menrest of Bread. You've been listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dana Cowan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly here on HRN. Every week, I conduct intimate interviews with the brilliant, powerful women in the food world. We discuss their lives, their careers, and the ways in which they navigate the world at large. You can find Speaking Broadly wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again with A.V. Razika of Manresa Bread. And we were just talking to her about how uh, a felicitous meeting with Chef David Kinch of Manresa uh, while in New York ended up bringing her out west. But I know you spent a little time staging here at Per Se with a, a bread baker and working at Bouchon Bakery before you ever decided to leave this coast. Yeah, um, I was, I was because of the, the kind of connections through the culinary school, um, I said, I really want to go, I didn't actually really want to work in a bakery, I wanted to work in a um, bread program in a restaurant. What, what is that? Can we define what that is yeah. versus a bakery? <clears throat> well, I think now I know a lot more about bakeries, <laughs> owning one and creating one, but um, at the time, I mean, I'd only worked in restaurants, only a handful of them, and so I, to me, my thought process with was I loved the intensity of fine dining restaurants. I loved um, the focus, the determination, the level of expectation or execution that was expected. I wanted to make bread in that environment, um, have it be a part of a bigger food program. I thought of bakeries at that point, and I don't think that this is in- is completely correct or completely incorrect. I thought of bakeries as sort of these casual places where kind of people kind of came to work and wore t-shirts and all these things. Now, all of those things are true and there's not a problem with them. I see them from a totally different perspective now. But as a young cook, never having, like, you know, with the stars in my eyes, I was like, I want to be baking bread. I want to be wearing starched whites baking bread, you know. I want to, I wanted that and that's why I went to Per Se because that was like, okay, let's see what this, like, they're, you know, I'd heard that you weren't allowed to, like, toss flour onto the table because you couldn't get flour anywhere, you know, and it's like the opposite of a bakery where, like, there's flour literally everywhere and, um, 
So I went to Per Se and Bouchon for an internship that was awesome. Um, I learned so much and have maintained relationships with a lot of the people that I worked with there or worked under, learned from there um, to this day. And that was, you know, gosh, almost, uh, you know, nine plus years ago, 10 years ago almost. So, um, yeah, so that between that my couple of months at Per Se and then the six-week baking program, I was lucky enough to have worked with such focused people who were such good teachers that they really gave me a platform of or a structure to work with that when I went to Manresa, not intending to be a baker, intending to cook, wanting to cook, and had an opportunity and, and saw that I could actually, with the little bit of teeny tiny experience I had, improve in some slight way maybe some of the processes that were being used at Mayresa at that time when I moved to California I was really able to take that and and grow and build on that and I was very fortunate for like all of that education I got in such a short amount of time was there even a back of house position when you first moved there there was not so I really wanted to work at Mayresa and I had worked for free a lot in New York City which I don't think we don't do so much anymore but um I, and when I happily did it, um, but I knew that I could not move across the country um, without a job. You know, I couldn't move without a paycheck. And so um, in Manresa, you typically internships there are scheduled six months or longer, you know, ahead. So in the middle of the summer, I said, you know, I really I'd helped some friends open a restaurant. I'd done a couple of different little things in New York, but I really wasn't finding the the one place I wanted to commit to as a young cook. And so I said, I saw actually a friend of mine reached out um, and he mentioned that he had seen that Manresa was hiring a food runner. And I thought, all right. So <laughs> um, anyway, in. anyway, in. yeah. So I, um, I was proud of myself. We were, I'd actually gone back to North Carolina because my sister was going to be finishing or starting her final year of high school. So we don't take a lot of family trips typically. And we took a little tiny trip up to the mountains in North Carolina. I had no cell phone reception and I was so desperate to get this interview that I realized I could Skype them. I was just so proud of myself. So I Skyped um, the GM at the time and said, I want to come out for an interview. Can I come out? And he said, absolutely. You're literally yelling this from the mountaintops. Yes. (laughs) And he was like, be here tomorrow. And I was like, okay. So we cut our vacation short. I mean, and I flew directly. I just was on vacation. I had no knives, no shoes, no nothing. I Not that I needed them to, for an interview for a food runner position, but I flew from uh, North Carolina to uh, to San Jose. I'd never been to San Jose before. Um, and I... Um, and I went, I went to dinner at Manresa and, you know, was just so excited and interviewed. And then I got the job and um, they said, well, we want you to start in a week. And I said, well, I really think I need, I need to have like two weeks to, to move, to pack up my stuff in New York. And they said, well, I don't know if we can hold the job for you. And I th- now knowing the guy at the time, I realized he was, you know, I could have easily just said, I really need two weeks. And they would have been like, okay, but I didn't know I could do that at the time. So I never went back to New York. My parent, my mom went and packed up my stuff. I mean, that's how intensely I wanted to be there, you know? Yeah. I mean, not to gloss over your time at Manresa before having Manresa bread, but can we, can we set the scene a little bit for those who haven't been to Los Gatos, California, where and what is it? So, um, Los Gatos, California is sort of a town that grew its wealth with the first Silicon Valley boom. So it's, it's a more established, um, Silicon Valley 
town, I think. I think of people kind of being more in their 50s, 60s. You have some younger couples moving in again now, but the we don't have is it's not the brand new people from Google and things like that. It's a little bit of a, a first generation Silicon Valley. And I always thought of, um, so you drive into Los Gatos, you drive down the main street. Um, it was all rebuilt after the earthquake in the 80s. And so um, all of these uh, stores have these incredible names. It's like kind of like, it seems like Sim City or something to me the first time I came there because it was like she said yes it's a boy <laughs> you know um, it like just like the the kind of like you know the most obvious of all expect like like descriptions of well, of what it that's is that's why you named it Manresa Bread exactly yeah. so we kept in line with that so it's it's a small town um, it's very neighborhood focused. Um, Beautiful homes, um, and the the town is the the little main street, which is really just kind of two or three streets, is is surrounded, nestled in beautiful neighborhoods. So all of the families can walk, you know, walk into the downtown, and so that's when we realized that we had enough sort of interest and support with the baking program that had grown in the first couple of years that I'd been at Men Race into something with some traction. We realized we could, we should, we should do this. Um, there was this little cottage that truly was a cottage at one point right next door to the restaurant. And I walked by it when the tennis shop that was closing was closing. And I heard the woman say, oh, yeah, we're, we're closing. And I thought, I said, oh, we have to call. And so and we were able to get it because it was like this could not be more perfect, you know, and it's teeny tiny. Now, we don't make all of our bread right there. We make it down the street, also down the street um, at our commissary space. And that is a bigger space that actually has which has been a great asset because it's been big enough that as we've grown and expanded and added new stores, we've been able to sort of continuously sort of reorganize the space, which is nice. Um, and now that we've started to mill our own flowers, we are able to, we have space for very big mill and things like that. But the, the original Los Gatos stores and our Los Altos store are both very tiny little places. Yeah. I mean, this was also a story of a store that opened, but also closed very quickly too. Uh, Manresa suffered a fire in 2014 and both that restaurant and your own bread program may not have seen the light of day if not for what? Um, I mean, I think that we, we were all, we all knew that um, when the fire happened, I mean, there was, there was no, no, no I don't think at any moment, everyone just was, you know, we just go forward, you know, there was no thought process of anything else. I mean, it was, devastating and shocking but man race is a very um tight-knit community i mean at in 2014 still we were you know we've been around for you know over 10 years it was um man race itself you know people who were working there it all worked there three four plus years so it was just you know it was this shocking horrific event but it wasn't um it was just, you know, it was like, we're just, we continue forward. And I think the the, the speed with which we rebuilt Manresa Restaurant, uh, which six months, um, it, which is kind of pretty impressive for the quantity of destruction that had happened with the fire. I mean, um, you know, and then Manresa came back better than ever. And then that's when we got our third star, you know, and it was kind of a testament to all of that. But I, I remember reading a story about how the bread kind of baked on. And there was an instance where you were making sourdough in the, the gas oven at a local pizzeria. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, we, the, the, the bread, we were lucky, the, the culinary school, um, so at that, to, uh, that, that time, 
um, the FCI or the ICC um, had a school uh, in Campbell and they were kind enough to let me use their space to do my pastry program. So for my, so we would continue to do the farmer's market during that whole period and a series of pop-ups in Santa Cruz. And um, those were some wild, wild times. So we were baking pastries in one location and then baking bread because the only oven in this restaurant that our friends let us use was a pizza, a gas powered pizza oven. So, you know, and and it it took me, I could fit maybe 15 loaves and I needed to bake a couple hundred each night for the farmer's market or for the pop-ups. And so we would do a pop-up on the, on Wednesday and then we would do two farmer's markets on Sunday. So even though there was no restaurant service to work for and there was no actual bakery to bake for, be, with with myself and maybe one other person trying to work between two locations, it was still a full time kind of seven day a week job because you had to go back and forth between these two spaces. I mean, now you have what a nineteen thousand pound TMB tag gas deck oven from Italy. Yes, and what what is the capacity of something like the, that? I mean, the capacity of that is per you know we can I mean on a nightly basis we can bake. Thousand, over a thousand pieces of bread easily. I mean, depending on how many hours you want to bake for, you know, you can be, you can produce 2000 plus pieces of bread easily. So, you know, going from being able to bake 15 loaves at a time to not, not a thousand loaves at a time, but I mean, also the span and the strength of that oven. That's why we wanted to get that oven because it, it's heat retention is pretty high. And so you can go from, you can, bake a load of bread a deck of bread you can unload that deck and you can more or less by the time you unload all four decks you can reload that top deck which not all ovens can do that because of their ability to hold on to heat and the stronger the heat capacity then that's kind of tied into the the more expensive the oven because that's all that's all of part of the engineering well when you're making three to four thousand loaves a week you need that retention definitely you you do so much in-house uh, which I know is the trend of many restaurants, but your commitment to how you mill your flour and have that control. Uh, talk to me about uh, the, the, the contraptions that you use to mill, the, the stone mills, but also uh, the need for not having that be a variable in your life and having that you know, be such a primary thing. Yeah, I mean, to, so the, the reason I wanted to work at Man Race, the reason I like you know, it felt like David was such an incredible, or the, the ethos of Man Rice, a restaurant, it's all about quality of ingredient, quality of technique. And then, and then does it, you know, tell the story of who we are, but if you're focusing on those two things, it's going to naturally do that. And so when it came to creating, like kind of following our own creative trajectory for the bakery, it was the same exact questions I wanted to ask. So if you were asking that question and you're baking similar bread every day, you're going to start to ask, well, where is my grain coming from? Or where is my flour coming from? Or why am I using this grain? And how was this grain made? And what happens if I don't use this grain, but rather use this, you know, and so by that, so then it kind of became this sort of thing where it was like, I think we have to have a mill because I think we have to learn about what flour is because I don't really know what flour is. I mean, not really, you know, no, you learn a little bit about it in school. If, and you can read books, but, but until you start to, you know, and, and by no means am I a miller. I mean, I think that that is something I think, I think sometimes millers get frustrated and I think rightly so that there is this movement in the baking world for more and more bakers to mill. And I will be the first one to say we are bakers making our own flour. That is a completely different thing than a miller making flour because that 
you know, there's a science and an art to it that ours is very intuitive. Um, we're, we're, we're making the flower and we're, we're using it and then we're making adjustments. I'm doing that in a very organic way, not so much in as, as scientific. That being said, consistency and variables are very important because already the thing that I love most about bread making or the thing that made me fall in love with, with it and going back to culinary school was the relationship that you actually have with your sourdough in my mind. <laughs> what is your sourdough name? I what actually is your don't. Name? I'm actually, we're just, we're, we're so, we're so intertwined. There is no name for me. Like they it's have a single white female it, yeah, kind of thing going yeah. on. Yeah. So, um, but you're already dealing with this live thing that, um, that is, you know, you have to pay attention to what's going on with it, all of these things. And so if you don't, I think that's why it is beneficial to just purchase flour because someone else is worried about the consistency of flour. If you're purchasing flour, if you're making your own flour, you need to worry about the consistency. And so, um, we have invested in a mill, um, it's called a new American stone mill and, um, it's coming from Vermont. Um, a guy named Andrew, um, builds them. He has a wonderful, amazing bakery called Elmore mountain bread. Um, and he, is a baker who is, you know, incredibly skilled and talented and developed kind of said, Hey, there isn't a mill out there that gives me all the controls I want. And so he created one. And so what we can control with this mill is not just the speed with which the um, grain enters the mill or kind of enters the millstone, the hopper, how fast it agitates, not just how tight or um, loose the millstone is or close or far apart from one another it is, but also how fast the millstone is turning. And when it comes to assessing how um, tight or far apart the millstone is, most mills actually don't have like a dial. I mean, it seems like such a straightforward they thing. They themselves are a dial. They themselves are a dial, but there is no typically numerical indication of where you are on that dial. And so Andrew stuck a, a <laughs> um, you know, a number system on it. And so we as bakers then can say to my team, hey, guys, right now we're buying this rye flour and um, we want to do a more of a fine rye. So we're going to mill it at 171, not 210, you know. And so the next person who mills isn't going to go up to the mill and just turn on the mill and say, oh, what does the flour look like? They're going to have some indicator. Oh, so that's interesting. You're actually purchasing some of your flour and regrinding it to specifications. No, no, no. I mean, I meant like we're rye, the rye grain. Like oh, okay, the berries, gotcha. Excuse me. No, okay. no. no. And we we do buy a little bit of um, organic uh, white flour that we buy from Central Milling, um, and we blend that. We I'd love to go fully in-house milling, but we do, we'd have to invest in a sifter and um, – Andrew's starting to make them, but they're, they're not easy to get by either. There's a couple companies in Denmark that are yeah, making come them. Come on, Andrew. Hurry I know, up. I, I mean, we haven't even talked about bread. And what I want to touch on is not only just the amazing bread program you have from Levon's, Whole Wheats, Pullman's, Pumpernickel's, um, you know, sourdough baguettes, but you also have this great patisserie um, yeah. and one of the best Queen of Mons I've ever tasted. Uh, talk to me about the division or maybe... Uh, Let's call it the contrast between those two parts of the business. I, 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 I think that there is contrast in the sense that I'm actually realizing now um, 
four years into having the bakery that the biggest contrast is that I think that I felt so confident as a baker, not so confident, but I mean, my affinity, my natural affinity was for the making of sourdoughs. I love laminated pastries and was fascinated by that as well, but I did not feel the same natural affinity at the beginning. I feel much, I love making them now. I feel good about my skill set and I feel great about the product we make, but um, I've actually realized that I created a really strong system for the pastry program because it was not my first experience and so we were very meticulous because I was like I need to be meticulous to make sure I'm making the right thing whereas when by bread making it was much more intuitive um and so it's been interesting as my team has evolved with the bread with the both programs um to realize that we had to go back a little bit in the last year or two and make a little bit more of a tight program with the bread because <laughs> the but but to the to your question of how do they contrast um I, I, I think they complement one another. Um, I think that if you're, that's why we do so much viennoiserie. Um, we don't do a lot of cakey kind of cookie things. If we do those, we do them to showcase uh, fresh milled flour. Um, and they're typically like 100% fresh milled. So they're really kind of showcasing that ingredient. But for the most part, 90% of our pastry program is viennoiserie because I think that they do have so many similarities. I mean, you have a a product that is leavened, that is going to be, is yeast-rised in some way, shape, or form, um, whether it's naturally fermented or whether it's using uh, commercial yeast. Um, you have, again, something that is actively kind of alive and moving and that you have to observe and look at. And so, and, and you have to kind of pay attention to all the way through, not just from the proofing process, but also in the baking process and the temperature control. And so I, I think that there are so many, they're, they're the same to me. I mean, I definitely think some people are more comfortable and confident in one world than they are in the other. But what we really try to do with our bakery is show our team members, teach our team members in such a way that they feel like they're understanding the techniques and the way that those techniques are relevant to both of those programs or both of those processes, um, rather than feeling like they're completely disparate things. Um, then there's also the next step that you take, which is the manipulation of bread into something else, or maybe not something else, but highlighting it in a different way. And that you have a menu sometimes with on bread and batine bread. Um, and I've seen you make sourdough spatzel, cacio pepe style, um, you know, simple like ham and butter sandwiches as you see in Paris. Yeah. Um, is, is bread a vehicle? Is it is it center stage? What, what element or accoutrement does it play on a menu like that? Well, um, I think that... What I really would love for on a menu like that, on a menu at our, our new store in Campbell, the goal is for people to kind of experience bread for the first time again in a way that makes them take note. So it can be a simple sandwich, but it doesn't need to be the reinvention of a sandwich. I don't. It, it, it shouldn't need. I don't think it should need to for our style of cafe because the quality of the product. Three simple ingredients: butter, ham, bread they should be a revelation because of how much care went into each one of those things, you know? And so, and the, the same thing with, um, now reintroducing the idea or looking at the ideas of sourdough and fermentation and flour in ingredients and products. Um, I feel like there's so many endless possibilities of like, of not reinvention, but rediscovery. Like we do a flour tortilla at the bakery. And I mean, I think it's incredible. I love our flour tortilla. It's all fresh milled flour. It's this beautiful, delicate tortilla that we use a little bit of coconut 
um, oil in instead of um, pork fat just to keep it kind of vegetarian friendly and it still gives it that same pliability and it's like all of a sudden what is kind of a could have been a kind of pedestrian breakfast taco becomes this like air like delicate light thing that we put some of our house made fermented hot sauce on and it's this perfect breakfast you know and we we took it off the menu briefly because we were having a hard time keeping up with the tortillas and there was a little little bit of a riot you know so well let's talk about something like french toast or pan perdu where it's something that's supposed to use old bread or maybe not um but it's supposed to elevate it or change it in a way that's delicious. But why have I had so much bad French toast in my life? And what is the best way in your mind to make a great French toast? Well, I think um, I think you do need to start with great bread. But I think if even if you were to not start with great bread, that question sort of gets to me to the whole point of why do we mill our flour? Why are why are we interested in that at all? And it's because I think that we use the word flour as if it's just. It, it, it fills in, it's, it, a tree is a tree, flower is flower. No, that's not, there are a million kinds of trees. There are a million kinds of flowers. And if, you know, flower as an ingredient plays, it, it's, if you're really get, using real quality flour or fresh milled flour or unsifted flour, it, it is a huge part of the flavor profile. So why do I think there's a lot of really bad French toast? Because no one, people are kind of treating all bread as the same bread. And so instead of adjusting a recipe, I think you can actually make a great French toast with a piece of bread, like bunny bread. I think you could probably make a great French toast. But what you need to do, the process you need to follow to get there of maybe drying the bread out and then maybe where's your sweetening agent coming from? Maybe it's not vanilla. Maybe it needs to be something a little bit more earthy. I don't know. You know, really thinking about that rather than just saying, oh, this recipe calls for bread. And it's, I'm going to follow this French toast recipe. Now I have this thing. You didn't take the time to actually taste the bread before you made the recipe. Well, let, let's leave it on this. You do ship to the lower 48 contiguous states. Um, and in that, you, you have a great supply of different breads and viennoiserie. Which breads do you hope people purchase, um, experience for the first time as if they've never tasted it before? And what do you hope that they do with it, manipulate it in a different way? Yeah, Um I, I hope that people, I think that our Kunamon that you had mentioned, um, I think that that is super special. It's absurd. Yes. It's, it's, it's one of, like, it blew my mind because it's a format that I had never seen before. Yes. Well. So, and actually, um, you know, there are large Kunamons available, like, in, or large format Kunamons available in France. But when the Kunamon became more popular again, it was... Um, much more kind of became more popular in France. Uh, resurgence in France it became, was popular in that small format. We love the large format. They're completely different than the small format. Um, the center, the way that the butteriness, the gooiness of the center because of the ratio of, of, um, of dough, it completely is a different experience. We also use uh, organic sugar, um, which is a larger crystal size than um, more um, refined white sugar. And I, so the way that that caramelizes, the caramel crust that it forms is really different as well. Not just the crust, but it almost had like a cream line to yes, it. Yes, I know. Yeah, I know. It's And it's like, it's incredible because you're just taking, but see, that's a good example of a recipe where there is no sugar in the actual dough. There's sugar when we laminate the dough, when we when we do all of the folds on at the sheeter, but the actual dough we don't incorporate any sugar into because and that's not true of all bakeries. A lot of bakeries use their same croissant dough for their kunamon, but croissant dough has sugar in it. And so to me, if I use my croissant dough, it becomes too sugary of a product. The balance is lost in my, for me, for my taste. Um, so I would love people to try our kunamon. I think that that's something that's 
very um, unique. Um, I love our, you know, one of my first loves was our pumpernickel bread. Um, I really love our pumpernickel bread. And I like to do a lot of, I like to even like kind of, um, so I like to slice it thin. It lasts a very long time in the refrigerator, which is great, especially if you're getting something that's shipped. It's also in, best enjoyed in kind of thin slices in my mind. But um, I also even like to um, crumble it and toast those crumbles. Um, when it's kind of at the, cause like as it kind of ages, it starts to lose more and more hydration. And so then it starts to sort of want to crumble, it becomes more difficult to, if you don't eat it all in, you know, a couple of, you know, in a week or so. Um, so I'll toast those and I'll just toss those even over a salad as part of, as just kind of that croutony piece, because in our pumpernickel, it's just, um, fresh milled coarse rye, uh, fermented rye berries, buckwheat groats, flax seed. Um, so you have all of these different little flavor textures and then it's so fermented. So it's kind of like a little umami bomb. Yeah. And again, you shipped all 40 I do. I continuous do. lowest states and everyone should experience Manresa bread. If not, stop by Los Gatos, Los Altos. And now or, Campbell. Or Campbell yeah. location. Um, order online because I, that Queen Amon, I'm still, it's, it's, it resonated so profoundly with me. It was such one of the best baked things I've had in ages. Um, thank you so much for, uh, you know, not only being on the show, but, you know, sometimes you have to burn something down to build it back up. Yeah, yeah. The story of Menresa Bread. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening. Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to our sponsor, Music by Cookies, and Matt Patterson, Engineering. Cheers. food scene is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage, and thanks for listening.